Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. I am your host, Trent Werner. In today's Deal Deep Dive episode, we are joined by John Totterud, owner of Cardinal Oak Investments. John is a multifamily investor and syndicator who focuses on sourcing, underwriting, sponsoring, and capital raising for his deals. John seeks out long-term and passive investments, as well as tax-favored wealth building through investing in multifamily properties. Now let's welcome John Totterud. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Before we get started and diving into a deal that we're going to talk about that John has in Oklahoma, I would like John to introduce himself and talk about Cardinal Oak Investments a little bit. Thank you, Trent. Really appreciate the opportunity to come on and share what we're doing here with your listeners and to hopefully provide some insights and guidance to help people in their journey, their real estate journey, and love to talk about it and anxious to dig in. Awesome. Well, John, I know you have a background in technology. How did you get from the tech world to real estate investing? My background is mainly in software, software development, engineering, managing other engineers, doing some consulting at my own software business for a while. And through the course of all of that, you develop a diversity of skills, especially in the consulting world where your projects are fairly short term. You're jumping from one area to another. I had a lot of opportunities to work with strong marketing people, people who were good in sales, not just other engineers in my groups, but people who did a wide variety of things in departments that did focused on accounting. And because my career evolved into implementing software systems like design and installation of large-scale software systems, commercial, typically off-the-shelf systems. And so I got to know a lot of different departments and many different organizations, and those are all great skills. I mean, you develop, you've got your technology skills, you're okay with numbers and with spreadsheets and things like that, but then you develop other skills, like I was in, had my own business, develop sales skills, and you learn by watching other people. But I was looking at my savings, my 401k, my investments and mutual funds and all that stuff. And they were doing okay for a while, then they weren't. And then they do okay. They were sort of up and down with the market and tried to be as smart as I could, but naturally you can't control that. You have no control over where they're going. All you can do is buy or sell and try to figure out what the time to do all that is. And I wanted something that I could control more. And so I was looking around and a lot of different investment types there are very few of them that you can specifically influence, but real estate is one of them. And real estate is certainly the opportunity to 
sink or swim based on your own skills and desires and motivation and energy and how much you put into it and what you've done to learn how to operate and own and really buy a piece of real estate successfully. I started looking at single family homes earlier on. This is probably 15, 18 years ago that I first started getting the bug and talked to other partners and bringing them in and trying to get them excited. And we were like before the 2008 crisis, we were looking at properties and didn't actually buy anything, fortunately, but it wasn't because we knew there's a crisis coming or hardly any of us knew that. But fortunately, I was not into real estate at that time. And so the crisis comes, the prices drop, and you're just bumping along at the bottom for a while. You're trying to figure out, is the economy getting better? Or are people getting higher? Or you look at prices of real estate assets. I already knew I was interested. And so looking around and I realized the banks had taken a lot of properties back and they were short sales and a lot of the short sales. And so I took that opportunity to buy my first property. It was a three unit and not too far from my home. And and naivety is sometimes a blessing. <laughs> I did not know too much about how to own and operate and manage a property, but you figure these things out. I had confidence in my own ability to get in there and see a problem and analyze it and solve it. That is what I was able to do, whether it's where do I find tenants or how do you write a lease or how do you determine what the market rent should be for your units or how do you interview a tenant and decide which of the applicants to move into your unit. And then it's how to fix things and really how to find somebody you can fix things and what kind of improvements to make on the property, all those things. You're met with a challenge and you've got to make a decision. It's your property and you have to make a decision. And I was able to do that and bought another small property and then owned those for a few years, managed them myself, and then sold them and bought bigger properties. And along the line, learned syndication. I mean, that was my background and my transition from IT into real estate. I was still definitely in a full-time job in the IT industry in various types of roles. And sometimes I get a phone call in the middle of the day from a tenant that something happened on the property. And sometimes I'd have to call somebody to fix it or maybe leave work to fix it. Or I mean, it's it's definitely not desirable, but it was all manageable and things that I could figure out how to do and talk to the tenant. I had a lot of experience in prior roles and talking with customers of a software product in a company that I was working for who were having problems with the software and kind of uh, talking them off, off the ledge and getting them comfortable with what I was doing. So that's a lot of what I did in those early years, for sure. And your story isn't much different from a lot of other people that get into the syndication world. I mean, a lot of people will start off with the smaller stuff, single family, small multifamily. They'll learn the business. They'll learn how to asset manage these smaller deals. And then you get the bug. You know, Naturally, you want to grow and get bigger. I guess, what are the two or three main skills that you learned by doing it yourself before you got into the syndication world? One skill is you have to maintain focus. You have to be looking at what these, you can't let issues languish. I did that once or twice is like put off a tenant and there was a toilet issue or something and I'll get it fixed. I'll get it fixed. And really I had other things on my mind. Some of these things you just have to, 
if you can't fix it right then and there, like you're out of town for some reason, you have to know people to do those things. And you have to know what your priorities are and maintain focus on it. Another is your ability to have conversations with people. And it's not always just tenants, but your conversations are with other people that you have to deal with. It could be your property manager or a contractor. I grew into syndicating and buying properties with other people's money. And so then you're talking with investors and then you're going out and trying to meet investors. And so it's an ability to speak up and ask questions and listen. I think listening, you talk about, oh, skills, you got to be able to talk as a skill, but really even more important than that, you got to be able to listen, listening it and respond and make sure the person you're talking to knows that you're listening and you hear what they're saying. They don't want to see blank stare. They don't want your follow-up question to indicate you lost them. <laughs> you were thinking about something else. You've got to maintain that listening and and then noting things. My memory's okay. It's not the best in the world, but I am in the habit of writing things down and make profuse notes about conversations and people and and events and things that I need to follow up on. And the listening translates to follow-up actions. You know, there's a few of those. I tell people that they need to develop spreadsheet skills, like certain technical skills and spreadsheets. And I know that doesn't resonate with a lot of people. A lot of people are thinking, that's really not my superpower. My superpower is motivating people or something like that. And that's great. You still need to be comfortable in a spreadsheet. I had a lot of deep experience. And so maybe I'm a little biased. You know, I live and die by my spreadsheets. Everything I have, I mean, I use commercial products, a lot of them. And there's, there's some great tools. And I'm a believer in using a commercial tool, something available for the process that I can buy rather than creating it myself. I'm a strong believer in that. But nevertheless, I still have spreadsheets and a person needs to be comfortable in the technology world to be good at real estate. That's another skill that I think a person needs to develop. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. Yeah, and John, I want to just point one thing out real quick. It seems like all three of your skills that you just mentioned all have to do with people skills in some way, shape, or form. And from being on top of things and doing what you say you're going to do and being focused, whether it's fixing a toilet or following up with investor, that's a very important skill when it comes to syndication. Listening is another huge skill when it comes to syndication and real estate investing as a whole. Because you want to help your investors achieve their goals and you can't learn their goals without listening. And then note taking and being organized is a very huge part of managing people's money and managing an asset and being on top of things to make sure that your business plans are progressing forward. So it's interesting that all three of your skills that you just mentioned have to do with relationships and being organized and being committed to doing what you say you're going to do. 
I thought that was really interesting that you talked about those three skills in specific. Yeah. And not too long ago, my background being so deep in technology, I mean, a lot of consulting roles that I had in my consulting, in my technology world were related to things other than technology. They weren't asking me to diagnose a system architecture issue. That's not what I do. I'm not the software architect. There are people that have been trained in that area, but I can come in and speak with all those people. But the things that I have done in in my consulting world, I've worked with a lot of people in technology that are deep into the tech and are very good at what they do. Software engineering or network engineering or electrical engineering or something related to that. They're good and they're extremely nice people. I noticed certain aspects about them that I thought I have this goal of being financial independent. I didn't go around in my offices and talk to people around real estate or financial independence or anything like that. I had a job to do and no one wanted to hear about that in my work. It wasn't something that I uh, spent time doing. In my, I am out of my W-2 job, incidentally. I left it about two years ago. But during my work, I wasn't out talking about these things, but I was observing other people and their personal situations. And it occurred to me that there's a lot of people in technology that that are struggling to reach financial independence and would like to, and are certainly capable of doing it and make decent money. They're supporting their families, but there's certain roadblocks that they see. And I decided to sit down and write a book about it. And so I wrote a book. It's available on my downloads now, but it's something that I thought would be valuable to people in this field, in the technology field. Why are they struggling to reach financial independence? You talk about the skills that a person needs. I didn't need to have a skill in a certain programming language to do real estate. I didn't even need to be that proficient in spreadsheets. I think it's a comfort in spreadsheets is needed, but if I didn't at least have an appreciation for the people skills that apply to real estate, then I would not have been successful. I felt that I did, that I've had the skills and I've had so many opportunities to develop the skills over the years that they've applied to real estate and they still do. And there are things important for a person to learn, but that's not to say you can rattle off top 10 skills that the person needs to be successful in real estate. And if you're looking at those skills and you're thinking, wow, I hardly have any one of those That doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. You have a lot of opportunities to bring to real estate investing, whether it's multifamily or single family or some other aspect of it. I can look at virtually every profession out there. Somebody a little while out of college or high school even, college is not required, has skills that apply to real estate. And then people in the teaching profession, people in the healthcare profession, in law enforcement, all around. There's plenty of examples of very successful people coming from these worlds who may not have initially realized it, but they've got skills, transferable skills. Yeah. And knowing that you have those skills and you're thinking about these skills, both for yourself and other people that you're working with, whether they're investors or other partners or contractors, whoever it may be, these skills are so important. And having these skills and identifying them, I think is a reason that you were able to start Cardinal Oak Investments and transition into this syndication world because you were able to identify the goals and the needs of your investors and share with them the opportunities that you've presented to them. And one of the opportunities that you presented to them is a 96 unit in Oklahoma. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So this 96 unit multifamily apartment or property, let's talk about this now. You're 
talking 96 units in Oklahoma. How did you find this deal? Because 96 units just doesn't pop up on your email box every day, right? Yeah, there are a few of them around. My broker relationships, I talk to brokers and I've developed relationships with them and they're in certain key markets. I've got a few markets around the Midwest that I like in particular. This one is in Tulsa, Oklahoma and, and was one of them. And so I talked with brokers there, got to know the market, got to know the brokers and the properties there and the neighborhoods, the different areas of Tulsa and all the other communities near Tulsa. I mean, you don't have to be an expert at it, got to know people in it, but I did get comfortable with the area. And I was looking at properties and I saw this one property probably three, three and a half years ago. And it was for sale. It was listed by a broker and the offering memorandum said, oh, they've all been renovated. And I thought, ah, I don't want to buy a property that's been all renovated because that's what I do. I buy properties that are typically pretty stable and I will make improvements to them. I like old classic units where a tenant is comfortable in it, but if there are upgrades to it, then the rent could be bumped significantly. And those are my target. It's a lot of people's target also, but those are great opportunities to really improve a community. So I saw this property and it was 96 units, as you mentioned, in Tulsa, and it's completely renovated. And so I just passed on it. Then about a year later, this is a little over two years ago, I saw it again listed by a different broker and called them up and said, is this renovated or not? Because I thought it was renovated. And they said, oh no, it is definitely not renovated. It was low occupancy. And the prior owner had bought it at even lower occupancy. And he was in the process of, of improving it. He wasn't the tired old landlord who would run out of money and really didn't like the property anymore. He was the guy after that. And so he had started improving it, making a lot of nice changes to the outside. The curb appeal looked nice. However, occupancy was in the mid 40s, 40%, actually 45, 47% or so. He had been renovating units and leasing them up. And so there was a little bit of proof of concept there. He was demonstrating what could be done to the property. He let the broker know. Somebody wants that property, I would sell it. And so the broker let me know. And I was looking at it and then became very interested because it just looked nice from the outside. They had done a lot of nice things. I knew the insides needed work and there was a lot of renovation needed to be done on those inside units. And so that's what I put together, put together the team to syndicate it. And we went out and found investors and then closed on the acquisition. Then the real work begins, of course. We're finding contractors, you know, one of the first things that had to be done is the electrical panels had to be upgraded. They were old brand that were kind of unsafe. And so we needed to replace the electrical panels. We knew that from the start. We had capital improvement funds and we had put the budget together as carefully as we could. So we had money to do all of these things. And we started replacing the breaker panels and we started upgrading units. And there were a lot of units that we could upgrade, all these empty units. And little by little, we started moving through the units to upgrade them and got the contractors in there and not super high-end upgrades. We weren't putting in granite for countertops or anything like that, but new appliances, LVT flooring, painting, new lighting fixtures, and a few other things. Maybe refinish the countertop, but did some nice things, spent a few thousand dollars on each of these units, and then were able to rent it out at a decent rent. We weren't trying to push maximum rent. Our job was to lease up, to renovate and then lease up. So we did that over the course of 12, 18 months or so. 
we got occupancy up about the beginning of this year. Occupancy was in the 90s. It has been low to mid-90s ever since, all year round. So it is a stable property. The tenants are happy. Once you get tenants in there, then it's a process of which tenants are slow to pay, maybe not nice to their neighbors or other undesirable tenants, but still basically paying the rent. Then we're improving the tenant base and we just won't renew a lease for someone like that. And that's what we're doing now is like, it's been leased up and we're improving the community and we continue to make improvements where needed. We have a lot of community activities and we see interesting things going on in the Tulsa market. A lot of growth still, and we have a lot of applicants for an available unit. It's very encouraging and we're happy to hold on to it at this point. I got a bunch of questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily a question, but one thing that we've mentioned on this podcast before has been the importance of a buy box. And it sounds like you have a handful of markets that you've identified. You know what type of property you're looking for. With this example, you saw that pop up. It was in your criteria and you were able to identify that this is one I can look at and weed out all the nonsense that you weren't going to even look at. I just wanted to mention that because that is a very important idea for someone to put together a very specific criteria that when they see it, they know this could be a potential one that we would be interested in in pursuing. What kind of financing did you get on this property? Because typically with 40% occupancy, some lenders might see that and not want to to finance a property with that low of occupancy, right? Yeah, yeah. Great question. Our partnership, our general partnership was very fortunate to have one of our members was a mortgage broker and knows the, the lending market extremely well and led us to a good lender. We have a bridge loan for it. And a bridge loan, everybody thinks it's this big, scary thing when interest rates rise. And it's not. It is a good tool for doing the kinds of things that we needed to do. We got a good bridge lender. They've been terrific to work with, and we have not had any issues with them. And I would definitely work with them again. Bridge loans today, they're just outrageous interest rates. I mean, 9 10% or whatever they are. I mean, I don't even look at it anymore. Um, ours is significantly lower than that. But still, we were in a bridge loan, which means we have to get out of it. We have to do something fairly soon. We're not in a super urgency, either sell the property or refinance it. That's what we lead into. It's sometimes good to take out a more traditional loan for property. If it's 40 some percent occupied, you're going to have a hard time getting a loan from the traditional lenders, either banks or agencies. I don't even know what loan products are out there for that, but you have to get a hold of renovation funds somehow. You have to either raise that from your capital investors or borrow it. We, of course, chose to borrow it from our bridge lender. And I think that was the right solution for this. As high as the interest rate is, it's still, when you think of your capital stack, it's still a much cheaper money than going to equity investors. But maybe you do, depending on the renovation stabilization type of property it is and your ability to raise funds, maybe raising the capital improvement budget funds is the right direction for you. It just depends on so many different things. But for us, we went and borrowed those funds. So I got two questions just based on what you were talking about. One is, what was the capital raise that you guys had to bring to the table for this? And two, what's your projected hold time for a project like this? We had to raise about $1.3 million, and the projected hold time is five years. 
give or take. And it could be three years or it could be seven years, but a five-year term, you're not going to get a bridge loan for that. So in the course of that ownership, you have to make a change and the jury's still out. We don't know what we're going to do. We've got choices and I'm not the decision maker. I've got a team. We'll keep talking about it, make a decision later, but there are different options in a product like that. Yeah, yeah, always. And then with the five-year projected hold time, what kind of returns are you targeting when you're doing your initial due diligence and underwriting? We target typically, and I just use the term so loosely, we're targeting that the investor will double their investment, 100% return over five years. And that includes both the cash flow and the asset appreciation, their share of the appreciation, their profits when we sell the property, plus the cash flow. So an average annual return of 20%. That's typically how most investors and syndicators are going to project the returns. It is not the most financially sound method. The internal rate return is a much better method, but it is a method. Average annual return, of course, is a method that we can all understand easily. Internal rate of return takes some explaining and takes into account when you get the funds as opposed to the amounts of the funds. Like, are you getting it all at the end or getting a good amount throughout? And that all affects the internal rate of return on a on a property or any other asset. Absolutely. And are you offering some sort of preferred return to investors in this deal? Yes. We have a preferred return rate of, I believe it's 7%. That's typically what we'll do also. Preferred return, as I'm sure you know, it means that of all the cash flow that the property generates in that time period, whether it's one month or three months or whatever, an amount equal to 7% of the investor's investment goes to the investor. And if there's more cash flow than that for that time period, then there's a formula for either the general partners, the manager on the deal to get part or a lot of it or all of it or or none of it. It just depends on the structure of the deal that was sent out. Typically, general partners on a deal, they want to be paid if they're performing really well. So if there's cash flow over and above that preferred rate, they want a share of it. That's what we do also. Well, John, I appreciate you sharing about the Oklahoma or the Tulsa deal. Where do you see Cardinal Oak Investments going in 2024? We are buyers. I'm very interested in the market. And I'm of the mindset that there's never a bad time to buy. There are times when it's virtually impossible to find a deal that makes sense but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be looking. And I think we all see the challenges in the market today, the interest rates and inflation, and maybe GDP is dropping, and maybe we are headed into a recession, and maybe unemployment is going up, and maybe a whole bunch of other things. Don't know, and I can't predict, and I wouldn't sit on the sidelines because I think any of these things are going to occur. I'm out looking, and I'm looking for opportunities to drive appreciation in a property. I'm looking in the markets that I know of. I'm not ready to switch a market yet, but certainly there are a lot of great markets that I'm not knowledge about and I'm not spending any time in. But I talk to brokers. I will bring a property. I will put a property under contract and make it available for investors when that opportunity arises. I continue to do that. And goals are in 2024 to buy several more properties and tend to continue doing that. Awesome. And John, you mentioned that you wrote a book. What is that book called and where can people find it? Uh, The book is called Five Reasons Technology Professionals 
five things that guarantee technology professionals will not reach financial independence. It's kind of a long, long-winded title, but <laughs> I try to walk through the five things they do. Things like they overanalyze. We all hear about it analysis paralysis and all that. It's particularly true with technology investors, but indecisiveness is another one. And there's a few of them. And I walk through them. You can get that from my website. And in easy ways, learnaboutapartments.com. And so you can go there and it'll take you to a link. Just provide your contact information and we'll send it right through. It's not Amazon. It's not something you have to pay for. It's just something that I think is good information that I like to share. I'm about educating and trying to inform people and share what's worked for me through things that I write. I produce a newsletter and I share insights in managing and operating multifamily. And I try to put information out there and help people become more informed. Very nice. And we'll make sure we link that in the show notes when this episode goes live. John, is there a way that people can connect with you outside of the website? Yes, well, you can go directly to my company website, cardinaloak.com, C-A-R-D-I-N-A-L.O-A-K.com, or my email address, john, J-O-H-N, at cardinaloak.com. Certainly, I'm available on LinkedIn and Instagram and a couple other social media as well. Very nice. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. I hope we answered and asked everything that we could today for our audience, and I appreciate you sharing about the Tulsa, Oklahoma deal. Yeah. Thank you for asking me to join you. And I appreciate the opportunity to share my experiences and learn from others as well. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.